You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have yet another, well this is a particularly awesome guest on the show today, we have Scarlett McDermott who is a CTO, that's a Chief Technology Officer. Welcome to the show Scarlett. Thanks Amelia. So hopefully starting with an easy question, although I think it might be a big question, what is your job? Yes, it sounds like an easy question, but sometimes people's eyes just glaze over as soon as they hear technology officer. Oh no! But really, um, you know, interestingly for a technology officer, I do a lot of work with people. Um, but basically my job is to to be accountable for any of the products that we produce that are software products or training products, but basically for executing um, our business mission with technology. And for us, that's making a social impact and reducing underemployment. And I completely forgot to ask, uh, where where do you work? Where are you the CTO of? I'm the CTO at With You With Me. We're a social impact company solving underemployment by helping people from diverse backgrounds get into technology jobs. Fantastic. That sounds, well, it sounds really rewarding once it gets working. Definitely. Yeah, I do not do well working on things that I'm not passionate about or that kind of, uh, you know, really repetitive grind. So for me, being able to have that combination of building things and helping people is yeah, the ultimate rewarding job. So. I really love it. Like listeners might hear the concept of helping people who are underemployed get into jobs and be like, well, obviously that's a good thing. But why would a company doing that, well, need technology and why would they need someone who's the head of the technologies? Yeah, good question. So we first started out when our CEO left the army and he wasn't able to find work. Um, And that's a really common thread among many veterans who are highly qualified, but it can be hard to translate that to the civilian world. So these days we work with a really diverse range of groups. So not only veterans, but women in tech, um, the neurodivergent community, basically any group that's underserved um, and has barriers to entry to technology careers. But the reason that we need tech to do that is so that we can do it for everyone at scale. So we actually put people through a series of aptitude and personality assessments to give you like a real picture of what you will actually be good at and to predict what skills you should go after learning and also to provide training on our platform and to connect people to jobs. Um, so it's, it's much more efficient than sort of one recruiter trying to interview everyone and get a feel for you know what they might be good at. We've actually got technology that can do that really well. And this might be a little bit off topic, but it sounds like there'd have to be a huge amount of psychology and research that sort of like goes, backs up all that technology to make it work. Yeah, you're correct. So we do have a R&D department that's a couple of psychologists who work on continually iterating our models. Um, So some of them are really widely used instruments like the Big Five personality assessment, and some of them are really bespoke to us, which includes sort of our aptitude assessment that we can use to look at you know, here's your aptitude across seven different areas and using that we can predict that your best matches to software developer or data analyst. Um, so rather than just look at sort of one IQ score and cut you off if you don't meet it, um, we look at things like where are your strengths? So is it in numerical reasoning or is it in verbal reasoning and which jobs actually really play well into your strengths as an individual? 
One of the many things I love about that is that it also highlights the diversity of opportunities that are available in tech. It's not just you have to be good at maths and algorithms. Like it's acknowledging not just that people are diverse, but also that the career opportunities for them are diverse too. That's a great point. And I think it does get glossed over that everyone in tech is a software developer um, is kind of the trope, but there's, you know, as many jobs in technology as there would be in healthcare, right? You wouldn't have one kind of doctor that does everything. And then you've got all the nursing staff and support staff and goes on and on and on. And the same is true for technology. And no one person is going to be good at every single job that exists in that kind of spectrum. I am aware like in America that there's a sort of a push for hiring of veterans. And I've seen that sort of on water bottles and things like this, this has been made by veterans. But I feel like it's not something I've come across as much in Australia. And I'm sort of curious how that translates over here. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And there is cultural differences. So we work in um, Australia, the UK, Canada, and a little bit in the US as well. And some of the challenges are universal. So things like not being able to translate the skills of being a rifleman um, into really anything else. But there's a lot of latent potential that sits under there with skills around teamwork um, and just resilience. And there's a, there's a whole picture. And then whatever skills that people have actually learned in their own trades or their own careers within the military. But within Australia, we do see a little bit less of it. We do have a really um, you know big range of veterans charities, but there's obviously a lot of challenges that we've seen come out um, you know, in politics over the last few months around the ways that, you know, from a government perspective, we help veterans to transition out into careers. So for us, that's an area we're really passionate about and we think more can be done there. And obviously it looks like you're part of the solution too, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. Always good to have a solution to a problem that you're calling out, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> yep, it can be a little bit awkward if you wander around waving your flag and not having anything to like help people out with what what is the experience for someone who comes across your platform like what what is their pathway through the the process that you provide another really good question so for us our platform's a bit different to anything that you might have used before like a linkedin or a seek where you're just applying for jobs we've really built our whole platform around the user experience of somebody who has a real driver for change in their life, whether that's unemployment or they're looking to transition out of the military or get back into work after having kids, they really want a job. Training is kind of a step on the way. And so for our process, what we do is discover. So we help people learn about themselves and their own strengths. Um, And then we train. So having identified what the pathway is, what's the gap from your current skills to where you want to be? and we can help provide that training through our platform and then to deploy people into a job. So we have a few ways to do that. So we can do that through traditional job descriptions, but we actually use our matching algorithm to match you to the jobs that will be the best for you as a person. Or we can deploy people directly into some of the employers who work with us as partners, um, as a a few different like temporary or permanent work programs that we do. That's an interesting thought that the training element is just like part of the step it's not I think particularly for say people coming out of high school like you look at university and in some ways university is the goal and it's the end point and you don't realize that actually it's really not like (laughs) it's a nice step 
Yeah, and this is, um, I, I believe it's a huge issue in the way that our education sector works, is that people are paying to do a training course or you know, to achieve a certification. And those aren't always attached to a set of skills that you'll actually have at the end or a job that you'll have at the end. So the way that we've structured our model, anyone who does come to our platform, that training is completely free for the individual. There's no charge to do the testing, the training, or to find a job. We actually make our money by working with different companies to help them get diverse talent in, but also to help them do talent mobility internally. So a good example of that is jobs that are going to be automated. So, you know, we know that a lot of customer service support jobs will be automated over time. So instead of letting hundreds of people go from a company, what we can actually do is look at how do we reskill those people into high demand areas like cyber or data? And how do we find out which people will be the best at those jobs? And so we can do that by, again, testing and training people with a job outcome really front of mind. When you say it, it seems really obvious. <laughs> it's one of those solutions that feels like it should hit you in the face. It's like, uh, why haven't we been doing that? Hmm. Yep, good question. <laughs> You mentioned neurodivergence and I was just sort of curious if there was anything like specific in that space you wanted to talk about. I think this is a hugely important space and it's it's really getting some of the airtime it deserves. And, you know, lately we've seen South Australia appoint a minister for autism, which is a, a first for our country. But if we if we think about autism as one particular area of neurodivergence, people who are on the autism spectrum actually have a six times um, an unemployment rate six times the national average, which is, you know, it's profoundly, like it's a shame on, on the industries that we've created. So there's a huge untapped talent pool there of people who want to do meaningful work and they want to have careers. But we put a lot of arbitrary barriers in place when we do traditional recruiting. So a good example is somebody who is on the autism spectrum may struggle with something like eye contact. So if you ask somebody to do a job interview where they need to make eye contact with somebody for an hour at a time, it's highly unlikely that person's going to come out at the top of the pack if that's what you're using as an assessment tool. And the same kind of goes for um, for resumes. You may or may not know the resume was invented by Leonardo da Vinci back in the 1800s. I didn't. And the resume is not my favourite thing. No, no, no shade on da Vinci. That's some great stuff. But... I mean, great guy, great tool at the time. But if that is the cutting edge of recruitment technology in 2022, I think we've got some things to look at. And, you know, that does, again, put barriers in place for people who are neurodivergent. You know, if someone's dyslexic and they're, you know, perhaps their resume is not the way that they really shine. But if that's the only lens you get to see somebody through, then, you know, it makes it really difficult for people to get to the top of the pile for a job they might really excel at. And we just end up with people who are hiring people who, you know, would pass the pub test. You know, we'd go get a beer together or you seem a bit like me and we can have a great conversation. So you'll be the top of the list. Yeah, it's the cultural fit rather than cultural ads that we've kind of been focusing on. Even more insulting about CVs, not to go on a rant about CVs, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> we could be here for a while. But half the time, at least when I'm applying for jobs, I've I'm convinced no one actually sees it because it's just read by like an algorithm that goes, yeah, you didn't use the right keywords, you're out. Like that's crushing, especially when everyone's like, you've got to tell each CV to each job. If you're applying to 30, 40, 50 jobs, you go up the ball. 
What a good call out. Yeah, the traditional recruitment experience for someone who's a job seeker, like you said, you're not applying to one job and you're writing one resume. You're possibly applying to hundreds of jobs and that's hundreds of hours. And for many people, that means that I can't invest the time to leave the career where I'm underemployed and I'm not feeling like it's meaningful because I simply can't make the time to do a hundred different job applications that really are just, please upload your resume and now please fill out a form that's actually just everything that was on your resume and then we'll feed it into an algorithm that doesn't take into account, you know, the, the vibrancy that individuals bring um, or any of the sort of personality or future potential factors. It's only a backwards-looking glance at somebody's past to try to predict what they can do in the future. And we can really do better than that with technology. Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully we get some, you can be the change. I'm curious, what what does an average day look like for a CTO? Average day is hard for a CTO. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I really love about my job is that many of my days are really different. But one thing that definitely exists in all of my days is uh, lots of meetings. So um, often I'll have meetings for a few different time zones. Like I said, we work in the UK and North America as well. So meeting with different teams Um, that are part of our product and engineering capability. Meetings with business, particularly meetings with customers, those are my favourite. One of the great things about this job is that I get the opportunity to meet people from all kinds of different organisations, from military um, through the public sector, government, um, as well as private industry, at all different levels to kind of hear about what are the talent challenges they're facing and to come up with innovative ways to solve those. Um, and also with the individuals who go through our platform. So you get to hear some really interesting stories of people who've kind of been in these underemployment situations. Um, and one that really resonates for me is military spouses. I myself am a military spouse and one of the it's one of the reasons that I'm I'm really passionate about what I do, and I'm sure we'll get to that later, but being able to see people take a leap from, you know, what is a comfort zone but is not rewarding to try something that they might never have thought of to become a robotic process analyst um, and to get all the way through that process and land their first tech job. Um, So doing meetings with people like that really makes my day. Um, But outside of that, you know, it's it's setting technology and product strategy. It's looking at our business KPIs and understanding how we can leverage the teams that I've got and the technology assets we have to actually achieve those things. What are some of the decisions that you have to make because you sort of hear technology and you sort of assume like like at what level are you, do you just make decisions about technology at what level do you make the decisions like yeah that's an interesting one so our company is about five years old so i was the 35th employee um, and so at that time the decisions were a little bit different it was sort of you know decisions about um, what new features are we going to put in the product? And those those decisions are still around, but now we're also looking at big decisions like how do we scale, you know, to hundreds of thousands of users, to millions of users? How do we build our infrastructure in such a way that it's going to meet all of the data compliance requirements in the different regions that we're in? And actually some of the hardest decisions are what to say no to. You know, you get to a certain point where there's just opportunities that you can see coming out of the woodwork, but you've really got to remain focused on what are the decisions that are going to have the biggest impact. 
and what can wait for later or perhaps you have to say no we'll never have time to do that thing that's still pretty exciting but it's a bit tangential to what we do I, I just cringe at the thought of having to say no to cool stuff. Like it's something that I'm personally terrible at and I just, yeah, having to do that at a business scale. Oh. Yeah, that's one of the really hard ones because sometimes you're in a, you know, I'm a person who loves ideas, so it's so hard for me to walk past something, but you can't afford to go down every rabbit hole or you'll really get off track pretty quickly. You need to have that guiding light of this is the thing that we do. Other people can do this other cool thing, but this is this is our cool thing. How do you work out how to scale a product from, you know, 10 users to 100, 1,000, 100,000? Like how do you, you know, I presume you weren't taught that at uni or something. How do you learn no. how to do that and then apply it, right? <laughs> Oh, surprisingly few of the things that I learned in my degree have uh, have come in handy in scaling a product and a business. But uh, like really the, the biggest thing is just to be focused on what people want and what problems people have. You can build the coolest thing in the world, but if nobody has a problem that is addressed by using that thing, it's just going to sit dormant. Certainly not a build it and they will come type scenario. So for... For us, I think it's certainly been a journey. We didn't start out with this vision of a complete thing that we would build um, and then we made a work breakdown and we did one item at a time until suddenly we arrived at this product that helps people get a job. You know, it was really we had veterans who were coming out of the military and they needed to get a job. So originally it was really just us putting one person into one job and then over time we built up, you know, and understanding that the jobs were in technology. So we needed to provide technology training to these people who were looking to get into these jobs. And then people didn't know which job to pick. So we built a product that would help people to understand themselves and what they would be good at and also give them a bit of a bigger picture about their personality and how they might react under stress and how they might communicate in a workplace. And then when we were in the process of applying that to people who were job seekers, it became really clear within our customers that they could use that within their own workforce to move people around. So it's this constant evolution of this is the things that I have that we've built. These are the problems people are facing. Can I solve the problem with the thing I've got? Do I need to change it? And how much do I need to change it? And am I going to change it too much for that one customer that it won't work for the other customers anymore? And there's this real give and take and you absolutely have to be ready to fail because you will not get that right every time and there's no formula and there's no textbook and you can't Google it and it can be really hard. Yeah, I failure comes up a lot on the show, actually. It's an important thing to em- embrace and then learn from. But part of the interesting thing about that is also that evolution of the product. You couldn't have known without having bits of the product that that other thing could be a problem. Like you had to have some of it done and then that's how you uncover the next thing. Whereas if you'd come up with your plan from the beginning, you could have ended up completely away from people's problems. So listening to the customer sounds important. Very important and not as easy as you would think sometimes. They just don't tell tell you things or they say just say nice yeah. stuff. Well, that was actually a real challenge. So that's less of a challenge for us on the 
parts of our products that are used by business because they're, they're paying us money to use it, right? If someone's paying for something, they're willing to give you good feedback on whether it's good enough or not. But because our training and our testing is used in bulk by people who are experiencing that for free, it can be really difficult to get them to say something mean about it. And, you know, it's great to get good feedback, but there's not a lot that you can do to change what you're doing rather than to reinforce some of the things that are getting good feedback. So really what's more valuable to me as a CTO and as a product or an engineering person is for someone to say, hey, this isn't quite right for me, or it could be better if we did that. And if it's for free, that can be a real challenge. Maybe that's why people only say nice things about the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's not. (laughs) Not to bring it back to me, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and then people will start getting really critical. You need new questions. No, I um, I think that's a really interesting insight. And I don't, I don't know how many listeners would sort of like bump into that, but I guess part of the, the lesson is particularly tech companies are actually listening to your feedback and providing actionable, meaningful feedback is like gold. Absolutely, yeah. And getting good at giving feedback within, you know, within our own teams has been really important because, you know, we try to be the first user of our products. We try to apply those methodologies internally and make sure that we're giving our staff opportunities to move around as well now that we've grown a bit bigger. Um, But, you know, even getting the sales team to give really specific feedback to the engineering team helps you to speed that loop up. So feedback externally and internally, super important. Love it. How do people find you? Like you're n- not the companies that use you, but the individuals. Yeah. So we are really particular about how we go about marketing. We try to hire people from the groups that we want to help. So most of the company for a long time were veterans themselves, like our founder, Tom. And a lot of the company is still in some way connected to that, whether they're military spouses or reservists um, or family of, of veterans. Uh, but now that we serve communities like the neurodivergent community, obviously women are heavily represented with our women in tech, uh, youth as well, um, and, and a range of other groups. And we're always looking to expand that. Being part of those communities and getting the word out by by proving it, basically, by people saying, hey, I've been through this and, and I've gotten a tech job. That is the best advertising you could ever have because when somebody gets lifted up economically, which is what which is what the point of this is, right? There's a lot of barriers in place to people getting into technology jobs that can really uplift their financial prospects for themselves and their families. They'll tell people about that. That's a great thing for that person and for that community. And so if you get a little bit of a snowball going, um, it's it's not hard to get people on there. Really leaning into the power of the word of mouth. Yes. Yeah, we do plenty of social media marketing as well and we try to find people where they where they are. So we do you know, streaming, um, esports, all kinds of things to find our user demographics in the places that they already are. We've seen a decline in Facebook because we've seen a decline in young users of Facebook. So for us, we've got to continue to adapt where we are and where we're marketing, but it's really that community involvement and practicing what you preach and that that strong word of mouth that has helped us the most. Fantastic. That's inspiring, actually. It's, It's nice. Well, just while I'm here, I'll give a shout out that any woman in Australia, the UK or Canada can hop on the platform 
or if you're in any of those other groups that I've mentioned, please get in there and get some free tech training. And this is not the first podcast where you have heard people talking about that tech's kind of cool and that there are jobs and, you know, you don't have to be sitting there coding, although coding is kind of cool too. So shout out for tech jobs and um, with you with me. We'll obviously include a link in the show notes. I'm very curious, Scarlett, how did you get to where you are now? Like say in high school, what was the plan? And then the actual path that has landed you there. Yeah, it was a squiggly path. Certainly much like our product, it was not a waterfall project. (laughs) As a child, I actually aspired to be a model, which would never have worked out for me because I like to snack way too much. But engineering was not on the cards. So my dad's a software engineer, actually, and I always swore up and down I would never be an engineer like that. That was a dangerous thing to do. (laughs) It was. It was, and here we are. So (laughs) what happened for me was... During high school, I actually took up an electrician's apprenticeship after doing some work experience and just really loving it. I love to build things, love to you know put stuff together and see it work. And I, I really enjoyed being an electrician for a time. When I got to year 12, they wouldn't let me take tertiary courses and do an apprenticeship at the same time. So I was kind of forced to make a decision there. And I, I went for the university pathway. So that led me to a couple of cool things. So I went to a great um, women in engineering um, boot camp at the University of Wollongong, um, which I found really inspiring. So I met a bunch of different engineers from different areas of engineering, um, you know, from robotics and electrical engineering all the way through to biochemical. And this one fantastic engineer, she was inventing some, some medical technology where you could implant a small piece of metal into a brain tumour so that radiation was extremely targeted um, when there was radiation treatment and just saw a lot of really cool things being built. And that got me really excited about doing an engineering degree. So I actually got a scholarship with um, what was then called the Defence Material Organisation um, to attend the Australian Defence Force Academy as a civilian. Uh, back then there were a thousand students and 10 of us were civilians so sort of stuck out like a sore thumb and that was a really exciting time I met a lot of interesting people it was kind of my first entry into the the military world and the defense sphere which I haven't really left since then but I didn't find that I loved electrical engineering because for me it was just too much in the books Um, everything was just calculus described as something else and so (laughs) Much to my much to my father's great upset, I turned down a fully paid engineering scholarship and again learned the power of how difficult it can be to say no to something. And I went from there to my first real tech job, which was IT support. And so I was doing IT support during the day and studying software at university at night. Um, so I was keeping myself very busy with that. And I have to say, if you're interested in a technology career, It might not seem like tech support is a glamorous option, but there is no better way to learn fundamental problem-solving skills than by having an angry public servant stand over your shoulder wondering why they can't do any work while you try to fix their computer. So that was actually a really important time in my career where I had to be able to communicate the problems I was solving. I had to have a good understanding of a lot of different pieces of software that were running on these computers and 
is it the fiber connection or is it actually a driver um, and just learning to communicate with people across across business and technology and so from there i finished my degree and i went on to be a software developer and during this time with my husband's army career we began moving around the country and one of the reasons i'm so passionate about getting women and particularly military families into technology is that I saw a lot of my peers' careers really hit a wall when we get posted to regional areas, but I was able to bring my job with me and I was able to work for remote companies the whole way around the country from Adelaide to Townsville and never had a problem finding work. And many, many of my peers did. And particularly as we've entered into the stage of life where we were all having kids, you know, I was able to, you know, do some postgraduate study in cybersecurity and work as a cybersecurity consultant at night while my kids were really little um, and still continue to advance my career. So for me, that's a really big driver in why I'm so passionate about this. And I guess to, to close out the story from there, I went on to do some cybersecurity consulting um, and then I ended up at with you with me after I was heading back to work um, full time after the kids. And I actually ended up as a user of our own platform because uh, as a military family, I knew that was available to me and it wasn't in the form that it's in today. Um, we've come a little way since then, but the way that I got the, the interview was I actually found some bugs on the platform and sent them through to Tom, the CEO with, this is the bug. This is how you should ask your engineers to fix it. This is why it's actually a real problem. Like, here you go, like I want you to succeed. So have the information and from there, I joined the company and within the company, it was not, you know, I didn't come straight in at CTO. I came in as a software development instructor and then um, with my cyber background, I saw that there was some work to do there. So I built our cybersecurity capability. Um, I did some work in product because I had a good knowledge of defense and Army is one of our big customers uh, and, you know, made some improvements in the engineering department and then eventually our original CTO left the company and I said to Tom, I'm already doing part of it. I'll just do the job. I I don't know which one was my favourite way of getting a job. The last one was pretty strong, but sending someone like a list of the bugs and how it could be fixed, that's like, that's got to be one of the best ways of getting a job. That's just fantastic. You'll notice that resumes did not feature strongly. No. <laughs> I, I, listeners, there you go. That is like tech jobs, bug fixing, like send them in a little bug report, you know, maybe use a story and bang. Love it. That's, <laughs> it's fantastic. I, I think part of, I mean, there's a whole lot of wonderful things in that journey and high five to everyone who's doing IT support and help desk work because that is hard it's often not super like people are not always super gracious or grateful but yeah there's it's a great way to learn uh troubleshooting the real MVPs are in tech support yeah yep and and just answering the phones (laughs) I uh, I'm sort of curious as well, like one of the sort of benefits that's come out of the pandemic is that a lot more, a lot of jobs have realized that you can actually do your job from home. Has that, is that starting to bleed into military spouses and supporting 
Like, are they benefiting from that as well? Yeah, I think all kinds of groups are benefiting from that. So even, you know, in the last 10 years when I started working remotely, I had to really convince employers that I was able to do that, that I would still do the work, that they could trust me, that I could access those systems. We had to make changes to firewalls and all kinds of things. But now it's it's sort of expected and great for military spouses, great for anyone in a regional area who might have had a lack of opportunities available, but also great, like I was talking about earlier, that the neurodivergent community um, and indeed anyone with a disability that makes it difficult for them to either leave home or to be away from home for extended periods or, you know, people who have a compromised immune system who can't just be around other people all the time. There are so many people who this has opened up just a wide range of jobs to that are going to be fantastic at those jobs that would have just been completely overlooked if it wasn't for that real shift um, in the way that we look at at work. And I think that probably would have happened in the next 10 years anyway, but COVID has really accelerated it. So for all the bad stuff that came with COVID, I think a really positive outcome is the acceptance of remote work. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I love the thought that, all these people who do have to move, you know, and yet you're uprooting rooting huge portions of your life anyhow, maybe you don't have to uproot your career and that's having one constant thing like that, like surely that's a good thing as well. That's kind of Yeah, cool. absolutely. And, you know, another really big blocker for military spouse employment is the fact that you end up with a, a resume that looks like a patchwork quilt. That's another reason why I think all resumes should go on the bonfire, but you know, you, you get employers who will straight up ask you, like, oh, you've moved around a lot. Are, are you in a military spouse? And that's the end of the interview because they're not interested in hiring somebody they view as transient for a job. So there's a lot of discrimination that happens really quietly. And, you know, something like remote work can really ease a lot of that. What is your favourite part of your job? What helps you get up, you know, let's say you have ridiculous early morning a phone call with America or Canada, what helps you get up there and do it with a smile? Yeah, the thing that helps me get out of bed at 4am is definitely problem solving and people. So, you know, I don't often have sort of a, a one-to-one at 4am um, where I'm meeting an individual. Usually it's a, a big prickly problem if I'm if I'm getting out of bed at that time of day. So for me, that's, that's the exciting part. And now that we've got quite a large customer base. We're working with governments across three countries. It's really exciting to be able to say, you're not alone with this problem. It seems like insurmountable, but here's a solution that a similar government or a similar defense department or, you know, um, down to a really granular level, like a similar team has solved it by doing this. And even being able to sometimes connect those people to each other directly so they can talk about their own approaches and know that it's not a challenge that, you know, they can't overcome. For me, that's really rewarding. There's something very heartening about that, everyone knowing that there's someone else out there. Definitely. You're, you're really the first person to have discovered a particular problem, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's much harder if you're the first ever person. <laughs> I guess that's probably how everyone who works at NASA feels. Oh, oh, yeah, true. On Venus. <laughs> yeah, or, or deep sea, anything deep sea. How do you actually, oh, dear. 
what advice would you give to young Scarlett? Well, there's probably a lot of advice she needed, but I think the best thing was just to do something. You know, you could see in that squiggly journey that I didn't just pick the right thing straight away, but for me, always being in motion and trying something new and seeing if it's the right thing is really important. And if I had figured out a bit earlier that boredom was such a big problem for me, that probably would have saved me some heartache because I just not in a good way if I'm bored. So just make sure that you're you're trying something and you're getting out of your comfort zone. And it doesn't have to be perfect. That's the other one. That was tough. Oh, it's I think especially I don't know. I don't even know if it's especially when you're young, but it does feel like that decision you make, that first job out of uni has to be perfect or the world ends. Yeah, I think we put a whole lot of pressure on young people to choose a career, which is ridiculous because as old people we know that the data is there that people are going to do five to seven careers in their lifetime. That's one reason why internal mobility at companies is so important because you know, you, you know that that's going to happen. So why don't you just embrace that? And why don't we stop making people have so much angst around career decisions and actually just support them to, to try something new? And, and we shouldn't be putting all that pressure on 17-year-old kids to be like, oh, I've got to decide what I'm going to do for the next 50 years because there's no way you're going to be doing 50 years what you're doing when you're 18. The option won't be available. Everything will shift so quickly. Exactly. Have you got any advice that you would give to people who are coming to your platform for the first time? They're probably in, I'm guessing they're probably feeling a bit, you know, uncertain about the world. They're a bit sus as to whether or not this this thing is actually going to work out for them. Any advice for them? Yes. Imposter syndrome is real and it's really hard and it doesn't go away magically. So I would really advise people who are doing a big career shift or who are starting out in their career to take some time to think about what are your own strengths? How can you really lean into those as you go through a big change? And probably to do some reading about imposter syndrome because that's one of the biggest things we see with people who are entering tech. You know, even once they've done the training and they've landed a role doing you know, low-code development, perhaps you know, people get this feeling of, oh, well, I, I can't be a, a developer. It's like, well, you're doing it. So it's going pretty well. But, you know, we put all these big ideas in our own minds about what it must look like to be a technologist or, you know, hackers are only guys in hoodies looking at a screen of DOS in green, you know. So we've got all these preconceived notions and it. it's very helpful to question those ahead of time before you get into a bit of a moment of personal crisis. Um, so just preparing yourself for, for what change feels like and the fact that, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. Anytime you learn something, it's right at that moment of frustration and then it kind of clicks. And that's the same for, for doing a career change. You're going to feel a bit uncomfortable and then all of a sudden, oh, I am a developer and it just clicks. I, I really like that. I think there's something about dev that really brings it out in people that you shouldn't be able to do it. And I think that's because when it works, it's easier than you think it should be. And so yeah. you're like, it can't be right. It's true. And I think people have this this whole big idea that being a developer is like the hardest job where you've got to be a genius or you've got to go through five years of training to do it. 
But the reality is if you're coming into an entry-level software role, you're going to have probably a software architect or some senior engineers who are working with you. And no one's going to pin the, you know, the, the whole success of a software platform onto one junior developer. So there are people who want to help you and, you know, engineers do want to help other engineers succeed. They're not all scary. Some of them are, but not all of them. Other than that one, that engineers are scary, are there any other myths or misconceptions that you've come across in this space? And feel free to just, you know, you don't have to pick one. Yeah, that you'd like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth busting. The biggest one I see is people not applying for a job if they don't meet 100% of the criteria in the job description. I like to throw that myth right out because almost no one does. And if you do meet 100% of the criteria, you're probably almost ready for the next job up. And that, that's not always the case, but if, if you're so comfortable moving into a new role, then you're probably not going to be growing and learning in the same way that you might want to. So that's one of the big, big sticking points that we see with building diversity in technology. Um, and in fact, over the last 10 years, we've only seen an increase of 2% of female software developers here in Australia, uh, which is you know disappointing despite all of the efforts and the programs that have gone into it. And, you know, in many cases, it's because women are less likely to hit that apply button if they meet, you know, 80% or less of the requirements. So one of the biggest pieces of advice I would say is if you don't throw your hat in a ring, you'll never get the job. So, again, have a think about your strengths, think about the things that you can do and your willingness to learn other things and go ahead and try it anyway. And just a bit from behind the curtain as someone who's been part of a team who's written one of those job descriptions the first couple of dot points they were like core and essential and the rest were just wishing and fishing like then they weren't the the people on the team didn't even have those dot points we were just like it'd be nice that's right yeah a big part of the platform that we've built is actually asking the people who are writing job descriptions to select skills rather than you must have experience in you know this particular tool. How about let's choose somebody who's got skills in data analysis? You know, here's the severe skill that you need, and here's whether it's critical to the role or it's optional to the role. So we can take away a lot of this variability, um, and you know there is a, a big responsibility on employers to make sure we're doing the right thing to get the right people into jobs. We're not pretending that every job is a senior job. Just because we we're wishing for seniors and. But we want to pay them junior rates, but that's, that's also right. <laughs> it's a different rant. Are there any myths, like when you say you're a CTO at a party, because we have parties now again, do, you, do people like have any myths about what that would be or like how do people react to you saying that? Yeah, firstly, there's still not many female CTOs. So I've been in situations where I've been the, you know, one of the only women in the room and one of my colleagues has said, oh, our CTO is over there. And someone's just looked around me to the person behind and he's like, oh, you mean that guy? And my colleague's like, no, the, the one in high heels, that's her. <laughs> so there's there's always this misconception where there's sometimes like, you know, a bit of a surprise that, oh, that's the CTO. And I guess the the other one that I find is that I'm often out there working with customers and partners and staff and I'm a really people person. 
and there's sometimes this um, preconception that CTOs are just nerds who sit in the basement or something like that. Right. Really? Still, yeah. It's got it's got the word technology in it, so therefore you belong in the basement with the IT crowd. Right? That's right, and you certainly shouldn't be selling to a customer. Okay. Sometimes it's useful to have the technical person in the room. Always, I think. But, you know, I'm all about cognitive diversity. So. <laughs> Is there anything else we haven't spoken about that you would like to share? Look, I think we've actually covered most of it here, Amelia. We've been really efficient. Classic engineers. <laughs> we got straight to the point. Fantastic. Well, in that case, have you got a high five, a shout out, uh, for someone or someone's who you think is doing an awesome job and deserves all the high fives. Yeah, this is a bit of a strange one for a, a virtual high five, but actually wanted to shout out Minister Ed Husick. So we've seen in the last couple of weeks a series of roundtables and we've seen the big Jobs and Skills Summit and a real focus on filling the gap that we've got in Australia in technology skills and not just Band-Aid fixing it, but filling it in a way that's going to encourage diversity in our technology sector and is going to bring some of that economic equality that comes with broadening tech jobs and who's going to be in them. So it's really great to see a new government come in and just really quickly bring an agenda that's focusing on diversity and technology. Really happy to see that. Virtual high five at Husic. I love it. That's fantastic. You'd be surprised how rarely politicians get high fives on this show. Well, when they deserve it. We should give them a high five. They certainly cut the criticism when they deserve that. <laughs> yeah, true. And obviously we will be uh, watching closely and with somewhat bated breath uh, to see, you know, some actions coming and some opportunities coming for people too because, yeah, hopefully we'll see some good stuff happening. Definitely. Everything is in the actions, so really looking forward to the next few months and, and seeing what falls out of that tech summit. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Scarlett. This has been absolutely delightful, uh, heartwarming, and, you know, I think we've all learned a little bit, which is always good. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening, you're a legend.